So tomorrow my kids all get here. Alaska kids, Hawaii kids, Washington kids. Uh, I've got 27 grandkids and eight kids and six daughter-in-laws and a son-in-law, six son-in-laws and two daughter-in-laws. Anyway, they're all going to be here in uh, about a week. And so I'm really excited and to get to see a bunch of them, spend time with them. And um, uh, it's going to be a really fun time. Just a reminder, the people I can see, uh, I just, they motivate me when I teach. Ones I can't see, <clears throat> they don't. <laughs> and uh, there's a few in the front. So if you ever, you know, have a choice sitting far away or up close, it really uh, helps my preaching when I see people. It just sort of gives me, it's better than talking to an empty room. You know what I mean? Uh, did you know that if you know somebody that is very, very motivated, sort of a high-energy kind of person, that they're that way because of what they think about, not because of what they eat? You probably knew that. Sometimes you think that they're that way just naturally. They just wake up that way. And uh, anybody can be highly motivated if they think about the right things on a, on a regular basis. What we think about basically determines a whole bunch about our life. And so if you think about politics, if you think about COVID, if you think about mandates, I would be willing to bet that your enthusiasm level is going to be about the first floor, maybe in the basement. It's not going to be real high. Now, if you think about those things, you think about them because you choose to. Nobody makes you. You tend to think about the things that get a lot of noise around us, and so they, they sort of happens, what you might call naturally, but we can still choose what we think about. And if you choose to think about the right thing predominantly in your life, you can elevate your enthusiasm level, your passion level, your energy level substantially if you just decide that you're going to think about things that do that. See, our uh, passion, our fire, is based on out here what we set our mind on. And so if we're careful to set our mind on the right things, then we'll be an individual that has a lot of energy, a lot of passion, a lot of fire, uh, enthusiasm. We get a lot done. We uh, serve the Lord well just simply based on what we choose to think about. So I'm going to give you some suggestions tonight because if you're going to become a holy, righteous person pleasing to the Lord, it's going to take some work, some diligence, and only those who are highly motivated do it. And it's not something that you're going to uh, uh, take a vitamin pill for. It's something that's going to happen because you choose to think about the things that produce passion and motivation in you. So when I was about 40, uh, been pastoring here since I'd been 28, and there was a seminar at Western Baptist Bible College, now called Corbin. And I like to go to seminars and learn stuff, and it was... Uh, advertised by Earl Roger, the president of Western Baptist Seminary at the time, and he was uh, kind of a token speaker in it, though he didn't, wasn't the main speaker. The main speaker was a pastor from R Romania, and his name was Joseph Sohn. 
and I'd never heard of him before, and also Bruce Wilkinson. And so I went to the seminar. It was four days long, and it was probably the most life-impacting seminar I've ever gone to in my entire life. And after the first day, I got really angry at no one in particular, but I was just super irritated that I was 40 years old, had grown up in the church, gone to Bible college, and the information I was hearing I'd never heard before in my entire life. And I thought, if I had heard this information when I was 16, I would be in heaven now. I'd be just like, uh, I would have been so motivated and so driven and so, I've wasted 40 years of my life thinking about all the wrong things. If I'd have heard this stuff when I was 18, oh man, would I be on fire. Here I am 40, I'm half dead. And I just now, I'm hearing this stuff. And man, I just got so agitated about the whole thing and I thought, well, nothing I can do about it. I guess I can't blame my former pastor because he's dead. And uh, so I, I don't know, I guess I'm just going to have to go from here on out and make up for lost time. Now this Joseph Stone was a pastor in Romania and he would preach and he'd get arrested by the communist uh, government and they would torture him. And he described some of the torture that he went through. And it was like, ugh, it made you sick to listen to it. They'd pull out his fingernails and they'd burn him. And they would electrocute him, shock him. And they'd beat him. And they just did all kinds of things. And then they would say, no more preaching about Jesus. And then he would go walk out the police station. And right on the sidewalk in the front door, he would stand there and he'd start preaching Jesus. And pretty soon they'd come get him and haul him in and torture him again. And they'd say, no more preaching about Jesus. And he'd go out right on the sidewalk in front of the police station and preach Jesus. I'm listening to this dude. The first day I was sitting in the back like some of you. And, and I thought, is this guy for real? And so I went up to the front row. I thought, he's going to, something, I'm just going to catch it. I got to get close enough so I can catch whatever he's got. I got really as close as I could get to listen to him talk. And, uh, and, he, and he said this. So imagine there's a, a person in the United States that never shares the gospel with anybody. Uh, special offerings come. They don't put any money in. They read their Bible occasionally. They go to church. Yeah. You know, they're saved. They've trusted Jesus. But they're pretty entangled in the affairs of everyday life. The world's kind of got them. They spend the bulk of their time... Uh, fooling around with their boats and their cars and their house and their jobs and they just give Jesus token time. So he dies and I die. And we stand before Jesus. And he says, so are we the same? Are we equal in heaven our, our, is our relationship with Christ the same? Is what we are given to do in heaven going to be the same? Is our joy level for eternity the same? And I'm thinking, that would not be just. Even though we're saved by grace, as believers, we have a level of, we're his servants, his disciples, 
we ought to do some things for, for him because of what he's done for us. And uh, I, I knew all kinds of people that were sort of zeros when it came to serving Jesus. And I thought, those, yeah. I said, I never thought about it. I, never th- I wonder where I would be if I stood next to him in heaven. Boy, I better get busy. I'm a long ways from him. So that's the way it went for four days. He talked about the judgment seat of Christ, about rewards, about quality of life in heaven, about being first in the kingdom, being last in the kingdom. And that all was new information for me. I'd never, ever heard it before. I grew up in a church where it was basically assumed that when you stepped into heaven, God just fixed you. And you were just like everybody else, and we just floated around on a cloud and played a violin. That was kind of the extent of my, what you might call eternity thinking. But after that seminar, that's all I thought about the day I stood before Jesus and gave an account and was held accountable for the life I'd lived and was recompensed, rewarded for the deeds I did in the body, whether good or bad, that's, I mean, that just consumed my thinking. Colossians says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Uh, focus on the finish line. And the more we th- I think about that, the more enthused I become about living life with some passion and some fire. It's a story about a missionary that gave his life as in Africa back in the days when there, uh, his health suffered. He gave his whole life. Uh, they didn't really come home on furlough much, and he was out there for 40 years starting churches and reaching people, came home. His health was broken. He came home on a ship, the same ship that Theodore Roosevelt was coming home in after going on a safari in Africa. And Theodore Roosevelt walked off the plank, and there was bands and and, uh, all kinds of celebrations. The president was home, and everybody uh, was off. And then this old missionary was standing there, leaning against the rail with his wife, and he says, just doesn't seem fair. He's over there killing elephants, and I'm over there saving souls, and he gets a big reception, and I get nothing. And his wife wisely said, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. And, uh, but, you know, the average Christian doesn't think that is going to make any difference, giving everything or giving nothing. And it makes a huge difference. And so motivation, when we talk about becoming holy and righteous, is all about motivation. Whether you're willing to forego the stuff in the world, the time and things in the world, in order to seek Christ, to serve Christ, and to pursue righteousness. 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And again, the, uh, last week I said, Why? Why? What's the motivation? other than the verse. Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. We're saved by grace, not by works, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Number one, you know, it's very few Christians are motivated to pursue holiness and righteousness diligently. There's no reason, there's no motive, there's no why. Because what we hear is we're saved by grace, no works required, period. Number two, they're not motivated because they haven't identified the why. And so the why that motivates is always a reward. It's always a reward, and God rewards and he blesses after we die and stand before him. It is appointed unto men to, uh, to die, and then comes the judgment. We will stand before Christ. The judgment is not determining whether we're in heaven or hell. The judgment is determining what the quality of life we'll have when we get to heaven, what the rewards are, what the relationship with Christ is. Number three, the most motivational why for me, this is me personally now, is knowing that who and what I am the moment I enter eternity is the who and what I uh, in character that I will be forever. Life has a purpose. The purpose is to make us like Christ. To make us like Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 41 and 42, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. You ever read about the differences in brightness and size of the stars out in space? That's huge differences. As star differs from star in glory, so is the resurrection of the dead. Glory is the main reward that we receive from Christ. And... Uh, some will receive a lot of glory and some will receive none. Number four, most Christians are not motivated by this why because they think that God is just going to fix them the moment they enter eternity. Most believers believe that. Most Christians believe that they step into heaven and they're fixed. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that. There's one verse that says that when we see him, we will be like him, but we see him, we see the outside, the physical, uh, and what we see is what we will be like. We will have a body like his. We'll have a body like his. Now, if you do nothing in this life, uh, you don't witness, you don't give, you don't serve, you're just living a selfish life. You're a believer headed for heaven, but zero works. You're still going to get a glorified body. You're still going to live forever. When we see him, we'll be like him in the sense of what we will have in the way of a house that we live in. When this house is torn down, we have a new uh, building. 1 Corinthians 5 says, a new house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. So I'm going to get one, you're going to get one, we're all going to get one. We'll be like him. But that's not talking about our character, who we are on the inside. Number five, if that were true, it would make life of no purpose and all the commands to be righteous would be meaningless. Life has a purpose. The purpose is to make me like Jesus. Is to make me like Jesus. 
Number six, Jesus was born without character as a baby, and it was developed in him by life trials and the Father's work in him. So if you read about Jesus in the passages that talk about before he was in ministry, it says that he grew. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with people. And it says he grew in wisdom and character, just like we do. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation. To perfect the author of their salvation. That's Jesus. To perfect Jesus through sufferings. To perfect doesn't mean uh, uh, he had a sin. It means his character. He grew in character like everyone else. No one is born with character, not even Jesus. He was born like a human, just like us. So he had to grow in character just like us. Number seven, character is not created by a creative act in a moment of time. It has developed or grown over time. Interesting to think about character, real eternal character that uh, determines everything about us when we step into heaven. Uh, that's what we take with us is our character. And uh, what makes it grow? My character. If you look in the Bible, you study that topic, there are a lot of verses that talk about how God grows our character. A classic is James 1, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That means grown up. Now, if God's going to zappo when you, get you, when you get there, that verse doesn't mean anything because you're going to be made perfect anyway. So why fool around with it on earth? Let's just let's be carnal, lukewarm Christians and have fun and fish more. <clears throat> Psalms 90 verse 12 teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom that word wisdom means character teach us to number our days to make the most of our time to manage our time I teach a time management workshop periodically and so I started out by saying so you're in this little workshop because you want to learn how to manage your time why? Why do you want to manage your time better? What's your motive for wanting to manage your time better? So you can make more money? So you can watch more television? So you can sleep more? So you can fish more? What's your motive? Why is it that you want to manage your time well? What it ought to be is so that you can become more like Christ in the time that you have left. You can be more like Christ in the time you have left if you manage your time well, if you prioritize the things that make a difference eternally over the things that don't. That's all time management is, is making the most of your time. In Ephesians, Paul says, make the most of your time because the days are evil. What's that mean, make the most of your time? That means grow. Become as much like Jesus as you possibly can in the time you have. Teach us to number our days. Number eight, when God created Adam, he created him with the maximum amount of character possible in a creative act in a moment of time. Character is not created 
Character is developed by life. Jesus had to grow in character. I have to grow in character. You have to grow in character. Some people grow a lot. Some people grow very little. It's the choices that we make, the effort that we make, the diligence that we put out that determines whether we grow or whether we don't. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Ever wonder why? Was God just flexing his muscles to see what he could do? What was the reason? That verse is in the Bible. God wanted to expand the, the Trinity as it were, to expand his family. He wanted us to fellowship with him, and we need to be like him in order to do that. He created Adam as much like himself as is possible. Any created being is less than God. Adam was, but that distance was too much for real fellowship to take place. <clears throat> Number nine, when God created Adam, he could do no better, or he would have. Any created being would be less than God by the very fact that they're created. You can circle that. That's a uh, statement that the average individual that has attended church most of their life has rarely ever thought about. Psalms 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. A little lower than God. What was the distance? I don't know, but whatever the distance was, it was too great for fellowship to take place. Number 10, God created us capable of almost infinite growth and change and created a world that is the perfect environment for maximum growth. I have a greenhouse. Some of you remember uh, one of my goals a number of years ago. I have a, a goal to learn something I've never learned before, do something I've never done before. And, uh, and so I, I don't know why it popped into my head. I'm going to uh, do aquaponics. I'd read something about it. I thought, that sounds cool. I like fish. And so I built this greenhouse, and I dug a hole in the ground, and I put a 300-gallon tank in the, in the ground, and I put... 100 tilapia in it. I bought them. They were just little baby things in the, in, the, in the tank. And then I built these grow beds on both sides of the greenhouse out of two-by-fours, lined it with fiberglass, and I filled it full of pea gravel that was a quarter-inch diameter. And in the middle of both grow beds, both of them were uh, uh, 16 feet long, 15, anyway, two two-by-fours have been 16 feet, 16 feet, 4 feet both sides, uh, 10 inches of gravel in it. Right in the middle, I put a uh, PVC pipe that went through to the bottom, and then on the, other, on the outside of that, I put another PVC pipe. The one in the center, it was open, and the one at the bottom was closed and open at the bottom. And what it did is when the water was pumping out of the fish tank, 100 fish in that 300-gallon tank, I fed them a lot, and they pooped a lot. About two days of unfiltered water, they'd all die but I would pump the water continuously out of the tank into the grow bed with all the pea gravel, and it would fill it up. 
And when I got up to the point where it went over that little standpipe, it started a siphon effect, and it sucked all the water out of the grow bed in about five minutes, and it went into the tank, both sides. It was always pumping in, and then it was siphon out about every 15 minutes when it filled up. And so the water with all the fish poop went into the pea gravel. There was bacteria in there that broke it down into stuff that the plants liked, and I would uh, just sprinkle um, radish seeds and and spinach and all kinds of stuff. I put grow lights in it, and they grew like overnight. We had spinach coming out our ears. I heated the water because tilapia likes 60 degree water, and so the warm water watered the spinach with all the fish poop and the nitrogen, and the water went out of that into the tank all clean and pure, and I fed the fish, and the fish grew really fast, and the, and the spinach grew really fast, and it all grew really fast, and I thought, wow, this is way more food than we can eat. I've got to give some of this to Ivy. Uh, the environment was perfect. I grew tomatoes. You remember about my tomatoes? I, I had tomato plants in the gravel, and I strung them up. I discovered that they won't pollinate without some wind. They self-pollinate. So I took my toothbrush, my electric toothbrush, and I would kind of like magic. I would touch the flower with my electric toothbrush. It would pollinate them. And I had tomatoes, big tomatoes. And people heard me about my electric toothbrush pollinating tomatoes, and they thought, you are crazy. I had so much fun. You know what ended it? We had a fire in the wheat field next to the house. Electricity went off because that's what started it. It was a big short in the power lines over the field, and it it dropped uh, some burning insulation into the field. So I grabbed my coat that was in the shop, and I dipped it into my tilapia tank, and I went out, and it was just like Charles Ingalls, you know, little house in the prairie. I was beating it out, saving my house. Finally, the fire truck came, and this smart aleck fire guy says, okay, Charles, we'll take it over from now. And, uh, but that coat I wore when I worked on my car, and it had uh, antifreeze and stuff on it, when I dipped it in there, when I came back, my fish were all dead. The environment didn't work so well for them. And then I had one other accident that killed them, and so I thought, all right, I did that. And so now my greenhouse sits empty, no fish, no spinach. So what's a greenhouse? It's an environment producer. The perfect environment to grow spinach and to grow fish and to combine the two. And it was so much fun. I had a lot of fun doing that. Do you know what this earth is, this world? Life, politics, COVID, taxes, all part of the environment. God designed the world and life to be the perfect environment for maximum character growth. Now, the difference between the fish and the spinach and me is in order for it to work, I have to cooperate. I have to pursue holiness and diligence. Uh, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. What if I grumble and complain, fuss and whine? Well, I waste what God has brought into my life to produce character. Instead of producing character, it produces uh, just the opposite. Early church fathers used to say the same sun, speaking of the sunshine, that softens clay, uh, uh, wax hardens clay. 
The same trials that God designs to produce character can produce rebellion and bitterness. We have to cooperate with the whole process. But if we want to be holy and righteous and we understand what God's part and what my part and we pursue it diligently, we can grow every day of our life that we live to be more and more like Christ. Number 11, our character growth requires our cooperation with and our submission to God as he molds us as a potter molds clay. We cooperate, we pursue, we're diligent, we're submissive. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are our potter, all of us are the work of your hand. Jeremiah 18, 4, But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So, spoiled in the sense of there was a rock or a hard spot in it, and, it, and so he had to dig it out and then start over and dig it out and start over. And so we become uh, less than we could be in the sense of the final product that steps into heaven to be like Jesus. When we fool around, make the most of your days because the days are evil. Uh, Teach us, Lord, to to number our days and we might present to you a heart of wisdom. So you have 5,000 days left and you waste a day and you waste a day and you waste a day. Does it show up in the final product who you are as you enter into glory? And what about the trials if you grumble and complain and whine and fuss? The vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased him less than what it could have been. Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That word good doesn't mean pleasant, doesn't mean comfortable. It's talking about character. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's plan for my life and for yours. And then James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy, all joy, all joy. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Number 12, our holiness, righteousness, and character growth requires that we seek it and pursue it diligently. PowerPoint person, let's jump to Philippians 3.12. Not that I've already obtained it, Paul speaking. Not that I've already obtained it. Obtained what? The character of Christ. Or I've already become perfect. Perfect means mature, grown up. So Paul said, I'm not there yet, but I press on. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
13, the level of character that we, have, that we take into heaven will dictate our capacity for joy. How much joy we experience when we get there depends on our character. So there's a parable, Matthew 25, you know the parable, but uh, most people, uh, I think, don't look at it fully accurately. It's like a man, Jesus is talking about himself here. A man about to go on a journey. He's just about ready to get crucified and head off to heaven. Who called his own slaves and entrusted his own slaves, his own disciples, his own, those who are believers, followers of him. He entrusted his possessions to them. He's talking to his disciples here. To one he gave five, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, he went on his journey, went off to heaven. Immediately the one who had received the five went and traded with them, gained five more. The same manner the one who had received the two gained two more. He who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, hid his master's money. He's, Jesus was his master. Now after a long time, we're still waiting, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts. That's the judgment seat of Christ. The one who had received the five talents came up, brought five more, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who had received the two came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more. <clears throat> His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. One also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. I was afraid and went away. Hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. I can't imagine what that would feel like standing before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ and hearing those words. You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him, give it to the one who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, do you know the average Christian reads that last line and they automatically assume that's hell? If it's hell, then you're saved by works. There's no mention of faith there. He calls his servants to himself, three of them. Gives one five, one two, one one. Talent goes on a journey, comes back, calls his servants to himself, holds them accountable for what they've done. The one that received one wasted it. He lived his life with no purpose. And so he's held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ and he gets, where is that? Fargo, North Dakota. you know where Jesus is going to be during the millennial reign? It says in about 200 places in the Bible. He's going to be in Jerusalem, in the capital. Do you know where I want to be? In Jerusalem with Jesus. 
Not in Fargo, North Dakota. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I did that once. Gnashed my teeth when I backed into a car in a parking lot. I mean, you know, you're looking and you're backing in, all of a sudden, oh, I gnashed my teeth. You know why you gnash your teeth? Because you want to do it over again and do it right. Look a little closer. There are going to be people who are believers after the judgment seat of Christ, and they're going to gnash their teeth. My mother said, well, I thought heaven was going to be a place where everybody was happy. I said, uh, do you know there's two references that say that there will be no tears? Those are both in reference to no death. It's not a broad blanket statement. It's specifically about the fact that there will be no death. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I don't want to be that person. Thinking about the possibility motivates me. Thinking about hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Every day that motivates me. Number 14, the level of character that we take into eternity will dictate our relationship to Jesus. Somebody said, I'm not motivated by rewards. I don't care about rewards. I said, do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. Are you motivated by that love? Yeah. So if you love somebody, don't you want to be near them as opposed to way far away? Well, sure. Yeah. When we talk about rewards, we're not talking about cars. We're talking about Jesus. He's there. I'm here. Not way, way, way out there in Fargo, North Dakota. <clears throat> Revelations 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. There's seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3 that are written about, and those are all basically talking about uh, believers, churches, and the judgment and the rewards that you receive or don't on the basis of the judgment. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, I know your deeds. See, that's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. This is not about salvation. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. That means not much motivation there. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. So sometimes I say, what does that mean? Let me ask you another question. When does that happen? Yesterday? Tomorrow? So as you read the, about the seven churches, this is talking about the judgment. So you're standing before Jesus. And he says, you're lukewarm. You were lukewarm all your Christian life. So the consequence, I'll spit you out of my mouth. doesn't mean you're going to hell. It just means you're going to be in Fargo, North Dakota, not close to Jesus. John 14, 1, this is words that Jesus speaks to his disciples. These are not words that we can personally claim because it's in the Bible. 
Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. That's a reward that some will experience. Where I am there you may be also. Revelation 3.19 Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Some do, some don't. That is change, grow. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's not a salvation verse. It's written to the church, to believers. I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. Is that yesterday? Today? Tomorrow? Let me suggest to you that if you study that carefully, it's after the judgment seat of Christ. I will dine with him and he with me. That's not across the board blanket promise to every believer, to those who repent. I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pay attention to this, he's saying. It's important. You get to sit with Jesus on his throne. Fifteen, in the life of Jesus on the earth, he had different degrees of relationship with different people. The closest of all the people on the planet earth to Jesus was the Apostle John. He was called the Beloved. He was the one that Jesus said, take care of my mom. He got to do things that not, nobody else did. After uh, uh, John, there was Peter and James. Then after Peter and James, there was the 11. They, they went with him wherever he went. Then there were the 70. They got sent out by pairs, uh, disciples of Jesus. Then there was 120. They got to go in the upper room and pray. They were there on the day of Pentecost. Then there were 500 that w witnessed Jesus after he rose from the dead, each of them having uh, a level of relationship with him from the inner circle to the outer circle, and then there was the crowd. And so the question is, which circle are you in? Because the circle you are in here is the circle you will be in there once we get there. 16, our level of holiness and righteousness in this life will determine our rank, our status, our usefulness in eternity. I don't know exactly what we're going to do, but it's going to be meaningful and enter into the joy of your master. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. That's a statement that applies to us after the judgment seat of Christ. I'll put you in charge of many things. I often jokingly say, uh, going to be a variety of jobs once we get into the kingdom. And one of the jobs I do not want is shoveling horse manure. I did a lot of that as a kid. I'd really like a cool job, ruling with Jesus. Revelations 3.11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name 
he was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Play, pay attention. He who overcomes, overcomes. Matthew 18.1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus goes on and says, if you want to be first and you want to be great in the kingdom, here's how. He didn't say, nobody is. Number 17, those believers who are in love with the world have a very hard time getting motivated by eternity. So I puzzled over the years as I would teach this information. And some of you are thinking, man, I've heard this a thousand times. Uh, it's like, uh, this is so important. I keep on teaching it over and over. And I think, there's some people that just don't seem to, it doesn't push their button. It doesn't get them jazzed up. doesn't get them motivated. And then I thought one day, it can't. They're too in love with the world. They've used up what is supposed to get appealed to by the promises in the Bible. And when a person is in love with the world, they've got nothing left to be motivated uh, to serve the Lord and to be diligent in all that they do. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So when I say, you know, you can be right here with Jesus or you'll be in Fargo, North Dakota. And some people say, I don't care. At least I'm not in hell. And I think, come on, man. Doesn't that motivate you? Evidently not. When you love the world, all you care about is just not frying long as you're in heaven, that's good. I don't care. I like Fargo, North Dakota. Probably a pretty place. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters either. He will hate the one, love the other, or else he will be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth and money. 18, those believers whose love for Jesus now in this life is lukewarm have a very hard time getting motivated to pursue righteousness because of the fact that it determines their relationship with Jesus forever. It's like, I don't care. No big deal to me. You can sit next to Jesus. I just, all I want is just to get in. Uh, Matthew 20, Mother, uh, I'm going to skip that one. I'm running out of time. Uh, kind of a long passage. You know it anyway. Second Peter 1, 3 through 9 seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, that's the Bible, that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence, all diligence. 
in your faith supply, moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, your knowledge, self-control, your self-control, perseverance, your perseverance, godliness, your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, increasing, you're growing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So a lot of people... Um, are not being diligent to pursue character like Christ to grow every single day, every single day, to faithfully practice the basic disciplines, to do the things that are important, to um, examine their own life and to see what they're doing and how they're doing because, man, we only have a little time left. And Jesus is coming or we're going to die and we're going to stand before him and give an account and be rewarded recompense for deeds that we've done in the body, whether good or bad. The rewards, one of those will be, we're going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. We're going to be in the temple with him or we're going to be in the outer darkness, out a ways. So it's this life, it's this life, it's got a purpose. God's going to do everything he can as the potter. All we have to do is to cooperate and to pursue and to be diligent. Read our Bibles every day. Spend some time in prayer. Serve Him. Do the basic disciplines like any good athlete. No athlete, an active, or no athlete who competes in the games wins the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And, uh, and then 1 Corinthians 9, probably the closest thing to a life verse that I have Everybody runs in a race. Only one wins. Run in such a way that you may win. Those who run in the Olympics, they exercise self-control in every detail of their life to win a prize that won't last. But we, on the other hand, exercise self-control in every area of our life to win a prize that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run without aim. I set a goal. I have eye on the finish line. I don't box is beating the air. I discipline my body, make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to you, I myself will be disqualified. Disqualified from what? From being next to Jesus. Lose the prize. End up in Jefferson, Oregon. I like it here, but not when I get to the kingdom. Not when I get to the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that our salvation is free. We could never, ever be good enough to make it into heaven on our own. You paid the price, and Lord, we are in your family. We are your children. We're your disciples, and someday we will stand before you and give an account of what we've done with our life for you as believers. You've given us everything. You've given us the Holy Spirit to live in us. You've given us your word, the principles, and the you ask that we would, with all diligence, pursue, forgetting what lies behind, to press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would be motivated because we have our eyes on the finish line, thinking about the day we stand before you and see you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I pray that that would motivate every one of us We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.